Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 6. In the last episode, I began the deeper dive into the Book of Numbers, covering the Negev Desert, Hormah, the two Mount Hors, and the King's Highway. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing the coverage of the geographic places, but first, I need to address a curious tidbit that arose in the last episode. And with that, let's get started. As I wrapped up last week, I quoted an interesting passage in Numbers that slipped under the radar. Since I was running low on time, I let it slide. But before going too long, there's the problem of Moses' father-in-law that needs to be addressed. Thinking back to the beginning of Exodus, we're told that Moses married a Midianite woman, Zipporah, while living in exile in Midian. With his marriage to Zipporah, his father-in-law is named as Ruel in Exodus chapter 2. In the next chapter, all of a sudden, Ruel is now being called Jethro, and this switch has a somewhat simple explanation. Well, a couple of very plausible ones. The first is easy. Jethro was simply Ruel's other name, in a fashion similar to Jacob slash Israel. The next possibility is that Ruel was the father-in-law's given name, and Jethro was a title. Since Jethro is named as a Midianite priest, it could have been his priestly title. Obviously, there is overlap between these two theories. The third potential explanation is a bit more involved. In that time and place, the family was headed by a patriarch. This is not new news, as we saw this in depth with Jacob and his sons. In the case of Moses' father-in-law, it could be that Ruel was the head of the family and Jethro was his son. As the head of the family, Jethro's daughters could also be attributed to Ruel. This happened when Jacob claimed Joseph's sons as his own in Genesis chapter 48. But this isn't why I'm bringing up the topic now. If that alone were a worthy subject, I would have covered it early in chapter 3 of the podcast, nearly two years ago. Instead, there are passages and numbers and judges that need a little discussion. Numbers chapter 10 verse 29 reads, Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, and there is no need to discuss what he said, but the relationship of who he said it to. This passage reads like Hobab was the son of Ruel, making Hobab Moses' brother-in-law. But two passages in Judges present something different. The first in the first chapter reads, the descendants of Hobab the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up to the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah. And the second passage is in chapter 4, and it reads, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites, that is, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And these two, both from the New Revised Standard, are real head-scratchers. Of course, Jethro and Hobab 
could be two names for the same person. But this doesn't square with Jethro departing for his home country in Exodus 18, so it must be something else. Of course, there is the remote possibility that Moses had more than one wife, and therefore more than one father-in-law, but a second wife is not mentioned anywhere in the text, so maybe something completely different. And for that something else, we go to the source Hebrew. Now, I recognize it's a bit of a language and grammar explanation, so bear with me for just a minute. The Hebrew language originally had only consonants, so no vowels. And at that time, what we call a father-in-law and a brother-in-law shared the same word. Only later were marks added above the letters to aid in pronunciation and understanding. The NIV and King James eliminate the problem by leaving out Hobab's name in Judges 1. In Judges 4, the NIV calls Hobab Moses' brother-in-law, while the King James calls Hobab, at least in this passage, Moses' father-in-law. Unfortunately, there's no definite solution. Just speculation in this direction or that. Don't worry, there's no quiz on this, and it is a bit trivial. But to me at least, it's interesting as it points out familial relations and the problems faced by the Bible translators. Moving along. I spent the entire last episode on the geographic places found in Numbers, at least some of them. I'll start out this episode the same way, but we'll soon get to places where the place names and the people who live there are very inseparable, like Canaan and the Canaanites, and Edom and the Edomites. Of course, in these cases, I'll cover both at the same time. The next place on the list is Meribah, but that was covered a while back in Chapter 3, Episode 71 of the podcast. So, I'll start instead with Arad, found in a few places in the book, some referring to King Arad, the Canaanite, and the other to a place known as Arad. Given that there is an ancient city named Arad, and it's essentially in a land considered by some to be part of Canaan, it's a fairly safe assumption that the king and the place refer to the same location. Modernly, it's known as Tel Arad, and remember that a tell is simply a hill, so a city on a hill. And for clarity, there is a modern city known as Arad, not too far from the tell, but it was founded later and named after this location. The ancient Arad was located about 6 miles or 10 kilometers west of the newer city. They are both west of the Dead Sea. It's in the Negev Desert, surrounded by mountain ridges. Before the wandering Israelites arrived, and even possibly before Abraham got to the area, the town was settled as early as 4000 BC and settlers lived there as late as about 2650 BC, at least as gleaned from uncovered artifacts. After this period, there's nothing for about 1500 years, leading researchers to believe it was abandoned. Do note that when Abraham was in the region, it was likely in this period when the tell was unoccupied. Somewhere around the 11th century BC, the site was resettled by the Israelites, 
at least according to archaeologists. This would place the occupation about 200 years after the Exodus. Now, remember, the dates are really fluid. When it was reoccupied, it's generally thought that it was an unwalled village. Over time, a wall was built, then a fortress. The buildup would continue, with artifacts uncovered from the local temple sanctuary, thought to date to the era of Kings David and Solomon. These artifacts include vessels for the offerings of oil, wine, and wheat. The typical type of things laid out in the Pentateuch. Under these kings, and then after the kingdom split, under the leaders of Judah, the fortress was kept up, and even frequently rebuilt and expanded. But nothing is to last forever. The fortress at the tail was destroyed between 597 and 577 BC, while the Judean kingdom was controlled by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. Overall, a cache of artifacts dating from the United Kingdom period until the area fell to the Babylonians has been found. Many of these items appear to be tributes brought in from neighboring kingdoms, and if not tributes, at least gifts. And this tradition continued after the fall to Babylon, even through the early Muslim period, roughly 1,000 years later. Among these are what are known in archaeological circles as ostraca. Think of ostraca as pottery shards with writing on them. Overall, 91 such pieces have been uncovered at Arad. Among these, well, most of them, have writing in an ancient Hebrew language, and many of these refer to the fortress as the House of Yahweh. It's the only known place bearing such a title. A reference in a context similar to it being the name of the facility. In the Holy of Holies of the temple were two incense altars along with a piece that has been described as a standing stone. It's thought these were dedicated to Yahweh, especially given the context of all the other descriptors as the site being the house of Yahweh. Many of these shards are requisition orders to the logistics quartermaster commands from superiors to subordinates, and list of names, likely troops. There's also a few that refer to an individual named Ilyashiv. On these, this apparent underling was commanded to provide a specific quantity of wine, flour, or other provisions. After the Babylonian period, the Greeks and Romans held influence, or control, or both, over the tell. During this time, maintenance of the fortress would continue to lesser and greater degrees, until Herod came along. Being the great builder that he was, he would invest some resources in the city with a few artifacts indicating he even had a bread bakery built, which seems really random. The fortress and supporting buildings would last in the area until the Romans got fed up with the Jews and expelled them in the 2nd century AD. After this, the area was once again abandoned, and it would lay unused for nearly half a millennium until the Islamists took over. In the mid-7th century, as part of their geographic expansion, they would rebuild and reopen the fortress, occupying it for about 200 years until 861 AD. Apparently, at that time, there was an internal rebellion, during this, the fortress was destroyed and permanently abandoned. 
to be uncovered in the 1970s. And that's it for Arad. Next, in the same passage, is Ethereum. To quote the passage in Numbers chapter 21, Then the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Ethereum. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Given the context and the lack of outside information, it appears that Ethereum does not refer to a specific place, but instead to a road, potentially a caravan path, or something similar to the Way of the Spies I covered a few episodes ago. Other than that, nothing. Very similar to this is a place known as Obeth, mentioned briefly in Numbers chapter 21 as a place where the Israelites camped after being denied passage through Edom. This was a stop between Mount Hor and Ijah Abarim. There are no reliable sources as to where this place may be, other than between the two places it was mentioned as being between. There is the theory that the place is the same as An Awiba, but that's not really helpful, as all that's known about this place is that it was on the border with Edom. And that's it. The next stop after Oboth is Ai Abiram. And about all that's known about this place is the meaning of the place name, which translates to the ruins of Abiram. The location of the place is also unknown, but the text tells us it was in the wilderness bordering Moab towards the sunrise, Fortunately, the next stop, the Wadi Zurid, is more understood. Sometimes, actually more frequently, you will see this place named as the Wadi Al-Hasha. Like most Wadis in the region, it's a typically dry riverbed, only filling and flowing with the occasional desert rains. When it does flow, it empties into the Dead Sea at the town of Al-Shafe. This place is mentioned later in Deuteronomy. Given the contextual clues and numbers, it's thought to be on the border with Edom, south of Moab, and close to the river Arnon, which is the next place I'll cover. After the Wadi Zurid, the Israelites encamped at the river Arnon. This is thought to be one and the same as the modern Wadi Mujib. It's a river in a canyon in the country of Jordan that eventually flows into the Dead Sea. The river in Numbers chapter 21, separated the Moabites from the Amorites. In other passages found in Deuteronomy and Judges, it's also mentioned as a border for the Amorites. After the Israelites settled in Canaan, the river would be the boundary between the tribes of Reuben and Gad in the north, from Moab in the south, as found in Deuteronomy 3. But do note that some Moabite towns were north of the river, even in this period. The simplest explanation is that part of the boundary was on the Arnon, with the other portion of the boundary lying about 10 miles or 16 kilometers north of the river. In the outside record, the 9th century Masha Stele recorded that the Gadites at one time occupied the town of Adaroth. No mention was made of the Reubenites. On the Stele, King Masha of Moab claimed he drove out the Israelites from his territory. He also takes credit for the construction of a road along the Arnon. And given the archaeological finds in the area, finds including uncovered bridges, fortresses, and buildings, it's deduced that the banks of the river have been strategically important for many millennia. 
And of course they have, as the river provided a really consistent source of water in an otherwise dry desert. The river developed differently than the other wadis in the region. And remember, the usual caveat applies. Not my research, I'm just the reporter. Or something like that. Anyway, during the last ice age, obviously the weather was cooler, even in the deserts of the Middle East. At that time, the Dead Sea was about 800 feet, 240 meters higher than its current level. But, despite this, it was still well below sea level by about 590 feet, or 180 meters. Due to its higher surface level, many of the canyons that now drain into it were flooded, at least partially up the canyon walls. As a result, these canyons formed bays in the sea. Bays that accumulated the sediment that would normally wash downstream. As the weather warmed, and the Dead Sea level dropped, what had been bays began to re-emerge as canyons. All of this thought to have been about 20,000 or so years ago. The mouths of these new canyons were quickly blocked by sediment and debris. In most cases, the pressure of the water piled up behind the blockages either burst through or carved a new path. The latter option is what is thought to have happened with the Arnon, with it cutting a new path through the relatively soft sandstone. But, the new path was a narrow, tight course, especially considering the large drainage basin that fed through it, a basin with at least seven active tributaries, some fed by spring water, water from rocks. There are also natural hot springs in the region. With the same volume of water moving through a narrower space, the velocity of the water increased, and so did the erosion, carving an ever-deeper canyon. All of this leading to the river noted in numbers. Due to this unusual geology and geography, the river was dammed in 2004, creating a large lake. Many of the canyons are highly inaccessible, even to this day, providing a vital hiding place for prey, predators, and even people seeking not to be found. The wildlife in the area includes rare cats, like the Arabian leopard I covered last week. Also, wild goats thrive on the rocky cliffs. Hyena, migrating birds, and even the Syrian wolf can be found in the area. And that's it for the Arnon. The last place I'll cover in this episode is the wilderness of Paran. This was where the Israelites stopped after Mount Sinai, and also where the spies set out from on their way to Canaan. Backing up to Genesis, after he and his mother were sent away, Ishmael settled in the wilderness of Paran. In Deuteronomy, God is said to have dwelt for a period over Mount Paran, assumed to be in the wilderness bearing the same name. Later in the Old Testament, the future King David traveled to Paran after the death of the prophet Samuel, with the wilderness serving as his refuge. The association of Paran with Ishmael led the region to be particularly venerated in Islamic tradition, though they usually spell it with an F, not a P. Given that the location is not exactly set in stone, it should come as no surprise that their interpretation is that the city is closer to Mecca, on the Arabian Peninsula. Some Islamic scholars go as far as to claim that the specific site in Faran, where Ishmael settled, 
was the actual place that later became Mecca. Other scholars, especially those who have purportedly translated the Samaritan Torah, place it in western Arabia, which would mean at least close to Mecca. Many members of the Islamic faith have grasped onto this particular interpretation of the Samaritan Torah. Jewish and Christian traditions hold that it's further north, bordering Canaan, which makes sense, as that's where the spies who set out from there quickly went. But overall, no one knows where it was. There is a bit of speculation that it may have been in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, near Mount Sinai. That, though, would place it a great distance from Canaan. And that's it for Peyron, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll resume the deep dive into numbers, continuing the coverage of the geographic places mentioned in the book. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.